Welcome to Robogues. This is the official basketball podcast. So hopefully you enjoy. Let's get started real quick. We have um, some papers ruffling in the background. Got my notes. Come prepared as, as best I can. We're going to start with the Clippers. There was a um, very interesting Clippers story I read the other day. Johan Buha. I hope I pronounced that right. From The Athletic. First of all, The Athletic is a very good source for sporting news in general, but basketball news. It's a subscriber-only platform. They don't do the clickbait bullshit. They do in-depth stuff, old-school journalism. They dig. They take their time, and it's usually a long-form article that you can really enjoy reading. It's not what I'm used to reading, for sure, with the free stuff. So it's it's well worth paying for. I'm not sure how much it is, and they're not a sponsor, and I'm not spruiking them for that reason. I'm spruiking them because they, they write great articles, much like this one they wrote about the Clippers and the turmoil they faced last season. There was some um, there were some rumblings. I just saw Doc Rivers mention that he felt like the players that were already on the roster didn't accept the new players, which was you know new superstars on the team in Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. This article um, was the contrary; it was pretty scathing in regards to Paul George and Kawhi Leonard not buying in and 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 getting the superstar treatment. So I'd assume it's in the middle somewhere and. Yeah, I mean, arguably one of the most talented rosters in the NBA, really in control of the Denver series, up 3-1. I know that feeling of being up 3-1 and and lost the series in in crazy fashion. We're up, we're up huge in multiple games. But from an outsider, I do know a little bit more than most that you hear from, from guys that played against them and friends of guys there and whatnot. But the Clippers, when I was still playing with the Warriors um, in, in 18-19, they lost a lot of their – their players, Lake and Chris Paul and whatnot, and, and they were picked not – I don't know where they were picked. They were picked at the bottom of the Eastern, uh, Western Conference somewhere, and they, they were overachieved. They were a bunch of underdogs, and they were they had some fight in them. They, they, I really, really thought even when we played them in the first round, well, they were tough. They, we had them down 31 game. They came back and won, and they never gave up no matter what the score was, and they just had some guys that had a lot of fight. They had a bunch of different lineups that Doc would go to. He had a small ball lineup. He had a big lineup. He had a, his Lou Williams, Montrez Herald lineup um, with shooters spaced around him. So they did a fantastic job, and, and they, were, they were fighters. So you go to an offseason, and, and you, you sign arguably the two biggest free agents that year in, in, in Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Kawhi coming off a championship with Toronto and leading them to to their first trophy ever, and you think yeah, they're, they're the favourites, right? And um, not to be huge culture issues down there. Apparently, the regular Joe NBA players weren't happy with the superstar treatment that the, those two were receiving or that, that they imposed. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, superstars receive superstar treatment. It's just the reality of the NBA. Is it right? Is it wrong? Arguable. What scope are you looking at from? But I can tell you when those guys met with the Clippers, both of them, this is what I think happened. They had a list of demands that they wanted, whether that's I need you know three massages a day or whether I need my own space in the locker room, whatever it is. They would have had demands and the Clippers would have had to agree. And, and that was one of the reports. One of the reports was that Kawhi, I think, wanted his own locker room or his own space, which is interesting in itself. I've heard of a few players doing that, but not not many. A few other tidbits that, that, that those guys would change practice schedules last minute. Um, they'd tell Doc when they wanted to practice. And, and look, I think that's a bit far for a superstar, no matter how good you are. To dictate, I think you still look. Let's be honest, superstars they need more hugs than the regular players. Use that metaphor, but there becomes a line where it can muddy the waters with the the regular Joes that are setting screens for you and rebounding, and doing the dirty work. So you got to be very, very careful there. And I think that's exactly what happened with that team. I think it was an us versus them mentality in the locker room. That happens in a lot of locker rooms, believe it or not. And for a team that was facing as much pressure as the Clippers, it, it all just faltered for them and they couldn't get over the line. You factor that in with the way the NBA has gone with load management, which I think is important. I think you got to rest guys at certain times. I think you got to play it smart with the guys that are in your starting lineup at times and, and, and factor in strategically some rest. Hey, this road trip, we're going to rest one of the guys. I'm, I'm all for that. The Clippers, I think, did it probably more than they probably should have. Problem being, these guys haven't played together. And that was the key cope. This was their second or third year. I think you can load manager shit out of them. But because they hadn't played together, the Clippers' style completely changed from the season before to this season. They were still figuring out lineups, who can play well together. And because from what I heard, a lot of the time they didn't have a full squad of practice. The stars wouldn't practice a lot and 
put miles on their legs in the practice gym. So you're not getting those reps. You're not getting that familiarity with this guy likes the ball here. This guy, this is his spot. Um, even if you're a role player, like a, if it's a Zubats or a, a Montrez Harrell, you know where, let's say, Kawhi is generally going to shoot that pull-up jumper. You can get yourself ready for rebounding position. Like all that stuff takes reps and time and, and, and games. And it's not something that you can just walk through and, and talent can just impose its its will and get you wins and they were a very talented team and they won a lot of games but they just um, they definitely underachieved so that article i highly recommend a read it, it, it for me it emphasizes how important culture is how important familiarity is and i believe that this was their downfall you know i think that look at the end of the day you need talent you need superstars you don't have superstars you're not going to get very far in the nba and it's a superstar driven league they run the teams they run the coach they run the gm don't don't get it fooled there's maybe a small number of teams that don't do it that way but for the most part you want to get a superstar player you're bowing to their demands so that's a separate issue but i think it's culture needs to be prevalent a little bit more than it is in the nba and i think the culture that we had in golden state for our first run it was self-formed by good people good players and just a genuine team of, of guys who had been all over the league. We had a bunch of different veterans. We had guys from th- that have been on losing teams, guys that have been on winning teams, guys that have won in college, and it all just it all just blended nicely. And we liked being around each other for the most part. Look, you, you're going to have the twelfth guy on the roster doesn't like the fifth player on the roster. Like it's human nature. Not everyone's going to love each other, but we understood for us to all be rewarded with contracts down the track for other teams to come and then offer you deals or whatever it may be for success. If we win. Everyone's going to reap that award, and that's what some guys just don't understand. And we understood that in Golden State, and it was it was phenomenal. Um, I can guarantee you that Clippers team did not have more. One, I don't even think one team meal together that was not pushed by either the front office, the coaches, management, or some sort of mandatory meal that they had to have. It was by that I mean the players never self-organized a team meal together to break bread, and if they did. I doubt it's more than one or two times. And the good teams do that. The good teams will get together away from when they don't have to be together, especially on the road. Like, what are you doing on the road? Well, we know what some guys do um, for the most part, but that only takes an hour or two. But you can still have it. You can still have a uh, a team meal. You know, you can still go and eat with your guys and then go take care of business later on. You know, have, have your fun. But that's where the, the Warriors team, We every road trip we went on, we had at least 10 guys out of a roster of 15 that would go to a team dinner. We'd book a local steakhouse, seven o'clock in the lobby, who wants to come, come. And at first we started doing it, it was three or four guys. It was generally myself, Harrison, and a few stragglers that would come along. And then all of a sudden we got to seven players and then 10 players. And then, then every every road trip, it was like guys were asking where we going to eat. And some cities you get to, let's say I'm from that city. Hypothetically, I'm from Indiana. And we get to Indiana, I'm like, look, our cousins and aunties and uncles, and I need to go see them. Guys be like, hey, yeah, yeah. You don't, you know, go do your thing, and us ten guys will go. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't always get a full roster because guys are from certain cities, and guys might have family or friends in town, which is understandable. But for an NBA team to even get ten players to, to get five players to a, to a non mandatory team meal doesn't happen. I'm telling you right now, and that was the beauty of that Golden State team. We we built so much camaraderie and 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 culture was built away from the basketball court. If you can do that, you've won half the battle. And if you're a coach on those teams, and you don't have to, you know, tell guys to get together. You've won half the battle, and that's what it is these days. A lot of it's, you know, the X's and O's is important, but it's people management, culture, guys liking each other. If you can get that right, you know, you can almost not drop any plays and still have some sort of success because guys like playing with each other. So you see the Clippers situation, who felt the brunt of a bad season, the coach, and that's the unfortunate reality of, of pro sports and the NBA. Doc Rivers gets fired, moves on. If they don't have a successful year next year, it'll be the GM calling it now. That's just the way it goes. And it usually goes coach, GM, maybe coach again. And then the owner might start to figure out, maybe it's my players. Maybe the superstar players I have, maybe it's them. I'm not saying this with the Clippers situation. They get a pass. It's their first year together. But that's generally the way it goes. And it's an unfortunate reality of it. So the Doc's over in Philly. They've brought in – the Clippers have now brought in Ty Lue, who I think is a pretty good hire. I think he will – bring that player coach mentality i think he understands i played with kobe played with shaq he's coached lebron i think he understands which guys need more hugs than others and i think he'll do pretty well in in la and i also think that you know paul george just signed a long extension Kawhi's gonna be hearing all this stuff as much as they probably say he doesn't read and read the media and listen to the media i think they all know what's at stake 
So I think you'd hope someone in that Clippers locker room gets those guys together for, for a few team meals away from from coaches and, and start building that 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 bottom crowd. And we'll say, let's leave the bullshit at the door. Let's let's move forward. And I, I think I think they'll, they'll they'll bounce back and have a chance to to be um, you know one of the favorites coming out of the West. So read that article. Once again, it's at The Athletic. It's a really good long-form read, the way journalism should be. You'll enjoy it. Um, some other news that we saw, we saw a trade, a pretty big trade, Westbrook for John Wall, Houston, Washington trade. Interesting one to me. I think it's a much of a muchness trade. I think um, John Wall's, I think, a little bit younger. Could be wrong. It might be around the same age, but similar plays to an extent. But what I mean by that is I think Russ is a little bit more athletic coming at your chest whereas john is is uses his athleticism to slice and dice but they all attack the rim and get in the pain they put a lot of pressure on the rim from that guard position they both are streaky with their jumper obviously westbrook's out of down you shooting the ball people knock them for for not shooting the ball as well as other guys that they do so much out there that I, I get frustrated when people just harp on the negativity of of their games when they do so many things out there that are elite. And like I said, I think it's a much of a much and straight. I think Russ is obviously a better rebounder, um, really fills up stat sheet. John Wall can also fill it up a little bit, but I think it's a, you know, I don't know who's won that trade. Um, I think Russ added another chip on his shoulder with how angry he plays on most nights is going to be interesting in Washington. So that'll be an interesting one. And then you look at John Wall getting to Houston. The elephant in the room there is James Harden. That was a great team that we played when I was with Golden State, and that was set up to beat the Golden State Warriors. They came close before I was there, went with KD's first and second year there, which I think was 16, 17, 17, 18, I believe. Or, 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 yeah, something like Yeah, I think that was right. And um, I came in 18, 19, and we played them, and we ended up beating them when they had Chris Paul and, and James and all that. They were tough, though. They, they were a team that, that every possession was massive against them. They, 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 they did not beat themselves. You had to beat them, and we beat them. A bit shorthanded, but we beat them. And it was one about one of the most thrilling playoff series wins I've been a part of, just because you know KD got hurt and everything we've gone through. We ended up um, putting all together and beating them. But you look at now what's going on. James Harden reportedly didn't report the training camp on time. I believe was asking for a trade, didn't get traded. Has now reported, I think. And look, I don't, I don't see this situation ending with James Harden on the roster. I think he, I think he ends up getting moved. I think. The writings on the wall. When these things start rearing their ugly head about 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 trades and whatnot, I, I think you're just delaying the inevitable. I mean, cut the head off the snake and get on with it. I think they're going to end up moving him. I think he wants to form a big three somewhere. Philly is rumored, and um, Brooklyn's the other one. That would be an interesting one in Brooklyn because that would then give you three guys who uh, generally have the ball in their hands for the majority of the game and you have three of those guys on one team i'm not sure how that would work because each possessing two of those guys would essentially have to be a role player or playing off the ball so don't know how that's going to work if it happens but let's see where that goes but i think my prediction is that houston will not have james harden on their roster by the end of the season i hope he stays because i think i think that he's been sensational there and i think they're you know they've been a, a pretty tough team they've been so close to making the nba finals who knows how that goes uh, an interesting tidbit to that with the trade stuff was when I was in Milwaukee, lockout year, I believe, was 2011, 2012. So in the offseason, we trade for Stephen Jackson. S. Jackson, my guy. I had played with him, obviously, that season. And I love the guy uh, on the court. He's, you know, he's balls to the wall. Like he's, it doesn't matter what's going on off the court. If he's happy with where he's playing or the coach or the, when he's on the court with you, he's, he's ready to go. He's ready to throw a punch. He's ready to fight for you. And you knew that. He's one of the few guys in the NBA that I knew, like, playing against him or with him, you know he's got your back if you're with him. And if you're not on his team, bad luck. You may be copping, copping a stray one. So we had him in, in Milwaukee and and it was a kind of a junky year with um, the the lockout. So it started late and we're playing okay at the time. I think we were 500 at the time. And then I guess S-Jax came in that, that off season when we traded for him. He came in on the day, first day of camp, comes in, does his media. They welcome him to Milwaukee. And I still remember he goes, welcome to Milwaukee. Thanks for having me. I just want to say I want my extension. And he was, I think he was 34 at the time. So our GM, uh, John Hammond, nervous fella at the best of times, doesn't know what to do. You know, he's, he's like, oh, is he going to cause us problems? And, and S-Jax didn't really cause us problems off the court. I mean, he wanted his extension, but was on the court, was training hard, was was a baller man. Like he was, like I said, when he gets on the court, forget any distractions that are going on, he's going to give you everything he's got. So it comes a point where he he's trying to get traded and he's like, look, if you don't give me my extension, get me out of here. You know, this isn't a, a team that's got a chance for the finals. I want to go to a contender. And I guess they're, um, you know, they're moving slowly on it. They had, I think it got to January 
Um, season started in December, got to January, still hadn't moved him and he's waiting, you know, what's going on. So I break my ankle in early January in Houston, fly back to, to Milwaukee with the team, get my scans out for the year, broke, broke my tailors, um, which caused me a hell of a lot of problems the next couple of years, but story for another day. And um, I still remember going to the Bradley Center to, to lift some weights. It's game day, shoot arounds in the morning. Go in, and Stephen Jack. The team's out on the court doing shoot around. Stephen Jackson's in, in the in the weight room with me. He, I, I doubt he'd mind me telling this story. He's riding the bike with me while I'm doing my lift. Right, I'm with the trainer, the strength trainer. I'm, I'm lifting weights, and so um, John Hammond comes in the in the weight room, and he's like, "Yes, Jackson, what are you doing, man?" He's like, "Look, I've got back spasms until you trade me." <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was kind of lifting, I like, almost dropped the weight on my forehead, like doing bench press or something. I'm like, <laughs> kind of eavesdropping into it. And John Hammonds, you know, he kind of had a bit of a nervous stutter. He's like stuttering all, all around the room. Like, come on, Stephen, you know, no, 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 don't do that. You know, like getting really nervous and stuff. And basically, yes, Jack said it again. He goes, look, I want to get out of here. You know, I've told you guys, I'm giving you a chance. You're taking your time. I am injured until you trade me. And so Stephen Jackson basically just sat out, and um, I was out for the year. Like, and <laughs> he would he would actually go and get workouts in before games. So like on game night, he would go out at seven p.m. game. He'd go out at like four thirty five o'clock and get a full sweat on with an assistant coach. Like, and then just go and put a suit on and sit at the bench. And defaulting him for it? It was a handle the right way. And arguable. Um, he was frustrated that the the Bucks were kind of dragging their feet on getting him out of there, and he knew that deadlines were approaching to get on another team, and he wanted to familiarise himself with wherever he was going. So, just a just a real interesting story, and he ends up getting traded in a deal with me to the Golden State Warriors. The Warriors had a bad record at the time, and Milwaukee was starting to feel the pressure about making the playoffs. So they went for a home run and they had already injured me and then a guy in Stephen Jackson that wasn't playing sent us away from Monte Ellis who then came in healthy to Milwaukee and they made a playoff run and made the eighth seed. So then Stephen Jackson ends up getting released by the Warriors because I think on the first phone call, Mark Jackson told me that he said, welcome to, to Golden State. And Stephen Jackson said, thanks, I want my extension. <laughs> that was like a, it was a young team that was rebuilding. Didn't have a chance of making the playoffs that year. And they said, yeah, we'll just we'll wave you. And they, they waved him. And then he ended up with the San Antonio Spurs. I think he finished the season with them and they went to the playoffs. I'm, I'm not sure how that all ended, but I know he was with the Spurs. But definitely not a knock. This isn't a knock on S Jacks. It's just, you know, one of the stories of many that I've, I've picked up along the way. And a lot of this kind of stuff, when trades are involved and free agency signings and movement, it's a chess game and it's all orchestrated between your agent, the GM, the coach, you know, it's 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 done weeks before sometimes. It's done, you know, it's, it's a leverage game. It's this, it's that. And there's unique ways you need to fend for yourself sometimes and Stephen Jackson found a really good way to get himself out of there and it worked. He got, he got out of there and he, he drew a line in the sand and said, if you guys aren't going to move me quickly, I'm not playing until you do. And he got out of there and then he, I believe as soon as he got to San Antonio, he was fully healthy. The back had, back had got much better and <laughs> he played. He was playing, so which leads me on to it's real interesting when you when you're in the league and you figure out um, with trades and free agency signings how that all works. Let me break it down for you. So most agents and journalists, but most agents have journalists in their pocket. So what I mean by that, the journalists that break big free agency news before anyone has a whiff of it, the journalists that break big trade news before anyone has any clue what's even going on. They're getting that information from from agents. Now, this isn't a, you know, I'm just doing giving them the scoop because they're good guys. There's, there's returns on, on that favor that come down the line, but those journalists will get all the scoops. And generally, the big agencies have one or two guys they feed to. Generally, it's one. But that agency will then, in the off-season, um, they've just fed this journalist, hey, this trade's gone down. He's broken it. He gets all the clout and clicks. This, you know, journalist broken it. Good for him. Unbelievable. Off season is going to come. That agency is going to call that journalist and say, "Hey, we have Andrew Bogart. He's in. He's in. Uh, he's going to free agency. He's out of contract. His home club where he wants to stay. Let's say Milwaukee Bucks or Golden State Warriors. They haven't offered him the max deal yet. We think he's. We think he's worth the max. But look, we need you to write an article to say there's three rival teams that have offered him the max, and and he's thinking about it. And but he really wants to stay where he's at. But he hasn't had an official offer from his home team. So they'll put pressure on 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 teams 
through a journalist, home crowd will get pissed off if they want to keep that player. That's how it works. Sometimes it'll it'll work and sometimes it won't, but that's that's how these relationships are created and you scratch my back, I scratch yours. You wonder how these journalists have, you know, there was there was a draft where I think Woj announced draft picks before Adam Silver or whoever was doing the second round announced them live on camera. He, he already tweeted them. <laughs> it's just like, and that's that's from agents. You know, agents are leaking it to him, and there'll be a return favor down down the track. So if you haven't figured that out for yourself, it's something you will now know. Generally, I can tell you I can because I've been in the business. But if you study it long enough, you can figure out which agencies are involved with which journalists. Basically, journalists that break a bunch of players' signings, check where those players are, uh, who they're represented by, and then do the math. It's pretty pretty easy to figure out once you actually know what's going on. But that's look, it's a brutal business. It's a shifty business. There's so much shit that goes on behind the scenes that you'd have no idea about. And there's there's teams that have signed friends of of superstars before that superstar becomes a free agent. And there's been teams that have signed players who are in the same agency as a certain player who's coming into free agency because it gives them a better chance of then getting in that following year. That player might have said, hey, sign a few of my boys, give look after them, pay them for a couple of seasons while you guys suck, and I'm the big fish in two years that'll sign there, and it's happened. I know for a fact it's happened, and it will continue to happen. It's just the, the, the nasty side of the business. But now that you know that, you'll be able to see what I'm talking about. Moving on, Kyrie Irving has announced that he's not talking to the media this whole season. I'll take the under. I'm willing to bet that he will eventually. I think this is a lose-lose situation for him. I respect Kyrie for the fact that he voices his own opinion that's not PR approved. Controversial at times, yes. Sometimes he's arguably said things that people deem as crazy and silly. I'm not arguing that. I'm arguing the fact that I respect him because he says what he thinks and feels. And that's a rarity in NBA basketball. It's a rarity in Hollywood. It's a rarity with sports stars and celebrities. It does not happen unless it's PR approved. But he's taken it out on this one. It's a lose-lose situation. The NBA has just fined him a couple of days ago or today. I think it was twenty to $30,000. That's going to continue to happen if he doesn't talk. They're going to keep finding the nets and they're going to have to come to some sort of solution, which I think will happen in the next couple of weeks, if not month. I, I doubt if he goes through the whole season without talking to the media, it would be absolutely amazing. <laughs> I will absolutely piss myself laughing, but I don't think it'll happen. I understand somewhat what his frustrations could be. Look, that's the main reason why I'm doing a podcast. There's journalists out there and media out there that preconceive a notion about you that have a certain story and how they're going to write it in their mind. And they come and ask you questions and they've already they've already said about how they're going to write it and what they're going to talk about and how they're going to paint you as either a player or a person. And no matter what you say, is not going to change that. So then on top of that, you've got clickbaiters, you've got people posting shit for Instagram likes and social media likes. And the NBA locker room is very welcoming to the media, as it should be. And that's a you know conversation which leads to – that's why the NBA is what it is. It's welcomed all kinds of media. But at times, there's, there's some bloggers that are borderline stalkerish at times, or there was. I don't know if there still is. Um, there, there's sometimes people in there that are just in there as fans. I can tell you there was – there were some journalists, quote unquote, from, from China many a times that came in, didn't speak a word of English, had no translators, didn't interview anyone in the locker room, said they were bloggers from somewhere in China. I can guarantee you they were a friend of a friend that got a hold of someone at the NBA and got in. And these dudes are trying to sneak in selfies with Steph Curry or Clay Thompson. And you just, you know, that's, that's what you have to deal with. But the real journalists there really get pissed off at those guys because it makes them all look like idiots. But for the most part, it's, it's, it's good people in there that are trying to do the right thing. But one person out of that group will ruin it. And I think that's Kyrie's issue is he doesn't want what he says being misquoted or clickbaited or written a certain way that's taken out of context. And that's that's just going to happen when you talk to media. It's, you're going to be taken out of context. They're going to paint things how you didn't want them to. And it's happened to me numerous times, sometimes rightfully, sometimes wrongfully. And I assume that's his gripe. So he just said, I'm not talking to you, but it's not going to work. The NBA is very protective of their media relationship, as they should be. The media have helped the NBA get to a point where guys can get paid $30 and $40 million. And I totally get it from both sides in this argument. But like I said, um, I think Kyrie will take the L on that and they'll, they'll eventually have him talking to the media. You can best believe that. Moving on, I'll give you some quick predictions. I don't get too much into these. I don't overthink them. 
I think the Western Conference Finals, this will be a no-shit moment. Clips Lakers in the Western Conference Finals. I think the Clips bounce back. I think they're, you know, they're facing a lot more pressure, but I think they'll be a bit more serious with everything going on there. The Lakers, to me, had the best offseason that I've seen from a championship team in a long, long time. They retooled brilliantly. They stole Montrez Harrell from the Clips. They've really got some great pieces that will complement LeBron and what they've gone there. And I think they'll be there when it's all said and done. Eastern Conference Finals, I have Milwaukee, potentially young. Giannis's last run in Milwaukee, it'd be a shame if he left, but we know what the league's like. I don't see Giannis as a huge big city superstar guy, but I've been shocked before, so I hope he stays in Milwaukee. I think he's very suited to that city with the way he plays, but I think Milwaukee will be playing Philly. I think Doc Rivers will bring new life into that squad. I think he'll he'll get them to, to play their best brand of basketball. All these picks, mind you, are if fully healthy and no trades, so don't hold me to it. But I think they'll be they'll be a top four Milwaukee Phillies and Conference Finals. LA LA Western Conference Finals would be great. I mean, the TV ratings would be out of control for that one. Um, so I, I like that. I'm going to give you a tip from left field. The two teams that did not make the playoffs in their respective conferences that I think will next season. Western Conference, I'm going with my guys, Golden State Warriors. I think I have them penciled as 7-11, to 11, somewhere around that ballpark. The West is tough. This is, this is I could be completely wrong on this one, but I think with, with the Steph Curry fully healed up and healthy, if they're healthy as a team and their whole roster plays 70-plus games, I see them making the playoffs. I think Steph... Any given night can go for 40, 50. You win games on that alone. So I think if they're scraping the high 40s, low 50s, they, they'll, they'll be in there somewhere. Um, hard to do, but like I said, they, they need to be healthy. Everything needs to go right. They're getting a better mix of youth and veteran leadership. And I think they've got an opportunity to, 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 to be much better. Out east, I've got the Washington Wizards. Obviously, an injury riddled last season with John Wall out of the lineup for most of the season. Bradley Beal, love his game, plays both ends. I think he led them pretty well last season with what they were dealing with. Add Russell Westbrook's fire and passion to that team. I see them in there. I don't know exactly where, but I see them making the playoffs. So there are um, two tips for you. And real quickly, we're going to finish NBA-wise with my Australian brethren. I'm going to give you a breakout Aussie for next season. I think will be... Bangers, Aaron Baines, I believe he'll have a breakout. Yeah, I think he had a very good bubble. DeAndre Aiden in and out of the lineup when he was out. Baines, he was, was killing it, shooting three ball at a massive clip. And DeAndre came back and he was in and out of the lineup, not playing as much minutes. He actually got, I think he got close to some DMPs a few games, which was head scratching. But um, I think Toronto is a perfect system for him. They, they space the floor phenomenally. Um, Nick Nurse is a fantastic coach, really knows knows his stuff. He'll put Baines, he, you know, at times on the block, wrestling, get no boards, and then he'll have him pick and popping a lot too. So I think that's um, a huge pickup for Toronto, and I think Bainsey will be the one Aussie that has the best breakout year coming from their previous season. I think obviously Ben will still be, you know, the, the best Aussie in the league numbers-wise, but watch out for Aaron Baines putting together a fantastic season there in Toronto. And lucky him, he doesn't have to live in the, the, the ice cold with the bubble, I believe. They're based out in Florida right now with the coronavirus restrictions going on, the whole shit show they got on there with, with their number and cases. So that'll be interesting. One other thing I'd look out for is I think Paddy Mills could be on the move. I think there's there's some rumblings that there were this offseason that Paddy was on the trade block. I think he's towards the end of his, his pretty big deal that he signed a couple of years ago and getting up there in age like yours truly. So I think they they might be looking to move on. I know they have a lot of young guards that they want to play minutes and Paddy was out of the rotation in the bubble towards the end when they couldn't make the playoffs, they were blooding their young fellows. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But Paddy potentially could be on the move somewhere, possibly to a contender, hopefully. And, you know, you, you always like to see a guy like Paddy remain with where he's had his success. But at the same time, I think the Spurs are middle of the pack. I, I don't think they're contending for, for a number of years. It'd be nice to see Paddy end up somewhere where he can be that, that spark off the bench um, that comes on and lights it up and, and leads a bench unit to a championship. So who knows? But watch that space. I think he's definitely um, a guy that has a chance to, to be put on a different uniform at some point next season. Moving on to the NBL National Basketball League in Australia. Those not familiar, it's about to start here in, in mid-January. So we'll, we'll do a quick NBL wrap. There's been some um, some rumors about how the format's 
going to play out. I believe from what I've heard, the, there's going to be a five or six round season starting mid-January, home and away season, everything is per normal, travel and, and all that fun stuff. And then they're actually going to Victoria for a hub, which is interesting. They're going to have a hub mid-season, which from what I've heard, the games will count as per normal towards the regular season. There's going to be, I think, 36, 38 odd games this, this season instead of 28. The games in the hub count. The games in the hub also count separately to a, a tournament style where the winner of the hub will get some sort of financial incentive or prize money and a trophy. And so it'll be kind of a what the NBA was trying to do with the mid-season tournament. And they've done, I believe, they've got some some cashola from the Victorian government to um, seems to be throwing it out like it's gone out of fashion, who um, will uh, support that, which is great from the Victorian government. Don't get me wrong, just just making fun of um, Andrews whenever I get a chance to. So that, that's, that's going on, I believe. And then post the hub, the season then continues again as a uh, – a regular home and away. So I'd be interested to see how that all plays out. I think whoever makes the best out of that hub situation can have a, a real opportunity to do something special. So I think it hurts the teams with, with really good home crowds like like those bananas up out in Perth. Great home court out there. I ha- absolutely hate them, but I love them at the same time because they're, they're fantastic Fantastic arena, beautiful arena playing, fantastic fans as far as the way they support their team. Best NBL crowd by far, but um, at the same time, I hate them. <laughs> as you can understand. So I think they're affected by it a little bit just because they, they will miss some home games. But I think the NBL will do them some favors. I, I'm willing to bet that um, after that hub, they'll have a, a boatload of home games in Perth. So as usual, their season will be loaded towards having a lot of home games. Probably, you know, usually it's because of the tennis and whatnot and the arena availability, but I'm guessing that's what's going to happen. We'll see how that plays out. A few other rumblings. out a few players confidentially get in touch with me. They're a little bit frustrated by... The Jock Landale signing. Now, Jock's a great friend of mine, great young fella, country kid, really like him. I think he's a not only a great basketball player, but a fantastic person. I enjoyed really being around him and getting on him a little bit as my rookie. He was my coffee bitch on the last national team tour. He had to get, um, I think it was myself, Joey, and Patty coffees before every game. So, used to get on him about, about that a little bit, but that was all in good fun. But he, nothing that he did wrong. He signed a, just signed a big deal in, in Melbourne with Melbourne United. Um, the last roster spot for the Melbourne United team signed. I think he was reported that he's the biggest, the highest paid Australian player in, in the NBL and he will be an NBA player one day. He, I think he has all the tools. He's had a successful stint in Europe so far and he would have been in Europe if it wasn't for the coronavirus but I think it's it's brought an opportunity for the NBL to have some homegrown talent stay in town. The wife players called me, well, players are taking a 50% pay cut mid this year leading into this NBL season not knowing when it was going to start but basically we're told by the higher ups at the uh, in the NBL office that um, a 50% pay cut or or it's 0% and there's no season. So players with back and forth with the PA, players had agreed. I had agreed it was the right move because of the shit sandwich we're all in. No one knew if the season was going ahead and, and everyone just got to gotta have that sandwich for a season to see how this coronavirus thing's played out. I was in agreement with that. Well, I'll put that on record. And that was at a point where I was still considering playing. So I guess the frustration for players is had as a club – um, have a roster spot open for such a big amount of money, and it's a it's a valid concern. I'm not saying that United did anything wrong; they did nothing wrong. They 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 put in the, together their best roster and they go over the cap. They pay the luxury tax, whatever. But um, these were players on other clubs that were like, you know, we've taken a 50% pay cut, and and now there's these stars coming in and making making a lot of money. So. You know, for a guy that's making 120, 130, 140,000, it was weighted. So I don't think they lose exactly 50, but they might lose 30%. So they're, they're, they're close to under 100 there. You know, it hurts them and they've voiced some frustrations. So I just wanted to mention that, that they're, they're, the league office might need to send out a few Christmas cards to players this year. But look, if this hub goes well and the season runs well and, and the NBL makes some profit, which I believe they will, it wouldn't be a bad idea to maybe give 10% back the players and make it 60 you know 40 percent pay card or something along those lines because um they, they they did the right thing by their league and i think there should be a little bit of a reward for that so if you're from the nbl or you're someone that knows the higher ups of the nbl there maybe give them a little nudge that if there's a, a good year and everything goes well the players who um do a fantastic job competing night in night out i get a bit of a reward my favorites for the nbl look perth's always going to be up there i think um, they're going to have a lot of home games towards the back end of that season. They play very well in Perth. Their fans are very intimidating. The referees shit their pants when they referee there. Trev's up their ass. Trev's up and down the court. Um, and let me just say, I would be doing exactly the same thing if I was them. Kudos. They've built a fantastic team there. They're, uh, they're basketball proud. They're 
they're rowdy, they're wild, and they do a lot of good things over there. They get them to win basketball games. Um, you just know it's going to be a tough game when you go over there and you're not going to come out without scratches and bruises and an ear bashing from fans and and a lot of whistles against you and get a win. So just one of those things. So I think they'll be up there. Melbourne, arguably the most talented roster on paper. That'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. I think they'll, they'll be the ones under pressure to win it. But the one team for me, I think is Cairns that has a chance to win. I think they do. I think they brought back their two gun imports in Scott Machado and Cam Oliver. Fantastic players. I'm so glad they came back. It's so nice for the NBA to be able to get some continuity with imports rather than having new imports every year. The Cairns have somehow managed to bring both those guys back. Fantastic job. They've got a lot, a lot of their young Australian talent coming back. So I, I think they have a genuine opportunity. They've played together for a year now. They pushed Perth to a three three game final series and potentially should have won that series. They were very, very close. Perth, obviously, they're, they're better in leadership, won out. And I think Cairns, you know, has a chance of winning it. So one thing I will add to the NBL picks, I've seen a fair few people put the Illawarra Hawks. Am I allowed to call them Illawarra? I'm not sure. That, is that official yet? Have have all the um, all the fans there in Illawarra bought all those memberships so you can get your name back? If you haven't, get out there and buy a membership. But um, I'm going to go on record and say Brian Gorgian coach team is not going to finish last. A lot of people have picked them to finish dead last. I don't think their roster is half as bad as people think. And they're going to battle. They, they, they might not make the playoffs. I don't think they will, but they're not finishing last. The Gorgian team, you might come back at the end of the season, they finish last and give me a bit of a clip behind the ears on social media or whatever, but I just don't see a Brian Gorgian team finishing last. And I think their roster has some some guys that can go and they will recruit well. Their imports will be good and Gorge will find a way to have that team be competitive and it's not going to be a walkover Illawarra Hawks team that's, you know... Um, up and down like a yo-yo, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna be strong and play to their strengths. They're not gonna beat themselves. So just one tidbit, and that's about it for the NBL. We're gonna get to um, to the Q and A next. Quick reminder: if you want to get involved in the Q and A, Rogue Bogues, one word, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube has the email details of where to send your questions. But if you've got a pen right now, it's roguebogues at gmail.com. Send through your questions. We'll get through them as we can. I'm going to be answering generally six questions. My playing number for most of my career was number six. So I'll do my best to answer what we get. We had a huge number of questions come through almost a hundred questions to siphon through. So appreciate everyone sending them through. If your question didn't get asked, it's not because it was bad. It's just the six that we chose were probably the best for this week. And if you want to keep a lookout for when the next Ask Me Anything segment is, we'll announce them on socials for the basketball podcast specifically or any of the other ones. So just stay tuned on there. But let's get rolling with this. Ask me anything. The first one comes from Daniel Boyle. This is from the northern suburbs of Melbourne. As a father of a young bloke, eight years old, loves basketball, especially kicking my ass on 2K20 on my Xbox. My question is, what are three of the most important skills or values you think junior sports boys and girls should be taught and how parents and or coaches help get them into kids in relevance to basketball? Um, it's a good question. It's pretty easy for me. The first thing is having fun and enjoying the sport, let's say it is basketball that you're doing. If you're not, if you're not going to enjoy what you're doing. Don't, don't do it. Like the parents that force their kids to do a sport because they're living their childhood dream through their kids. I cringe when I see that because the kid, you can see the kid has no enjoyment. He, you know, he knows he's doing it because you want him to do it because you're getting enjoyment out of it. Wrong. Uh, don't do it because it's just you're just going to have so many issues with your child father or child mother relationship beyond that sport that it will be hard to repair so the first thing for me fun enjoyment and second thing for me is winning and losing that is deemed as controversial today which is an absolute joke in itself when you're three four five i agree participate have fun kids don't really know too much about scoring they know winning or losing though because my son's four and he knows when he wins or loses a race i can tell you that because he's, he's pissed if he loses but as soon as they become involved in organized sport, winning and losing is going to be an integral part of that. Now, there's these idiotic associations with all, all walks of sports, basketball, football, soccer, whatever, that don't keep score. Let me give you a tip. The kids know the score. They keep score in their head. They know who won or lost at the end of the game. You're not fooling them. So just keep score and actually instill some values in your children with winning and losing. That is the key. 
So when you win, there are valuable lessons. Those lessons are you gloat and go and rub it in the loser's face. No, you don't. You be respectful, shake hands, and you be respectful. And then you, if you want to celebrate and gloat, you do that away from the losing team, obviously, and you enjoy a moment with your team. The beauty of winning especially for kids at a young age, is most kids will become complacent, especially in individual sports, somewhat in team. But let's say you play an individual sport, you play tennis, and you win You win your first local match and you play really well. That kid generally won't practice or train as hard that following week. It's human nature. They think they're on top of the world. And generally, a week later, a month later, the next meet, they're going to get a wake-up call. That's huge. a huge learning experience for that child. And that's brought from winning, but he's actually gone back down the hill and he's starting back from the bottom again because he got a wake-up call. The flip side of that is losing. There's losing respectfully, which at times I had trouble with. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I take losing very hard and at times could have handled things be- better and I've, I've definitely been a bad loser at times. I'm, I'm, I'll easily admit that. From a uh, child's point of view, learning how to lose is important. Good sportsmanship, shaking hands with the winner and, and moving on. The biggest thing about losing is then addressing why you lost. So you lost the game. In a team sport, it's a little bit different because there's a lot more other factors. But if you played bad and you lost, it's pretty easy to address, right? Individual sport's much easier. Okay. So now that kid that lost is generally going to put more time in that following week and get better the next week. They might not win. They might not win yet. But the more time they put in, they have a better chance of winning or playing better themselves. That's where we've, we've lost it as a society. We've tried to bubble wrap our kids and not have them face adversity and not that have them feel like a, a loser, quote unquote. No, losing is good. It's very, very good. Winning is good. Winning, losing is good. But I think we've just lost our ways a little bit. So that'd be the second thing. The third most important thing for me is just putting in the time and effort. And that, that generally will outweigh talent eventually. There'll be a, a cross-axis, there'll be a meeting point where you're you're at the same level as talent and you'll keep going up because you're working more. And working doesn't always necessarily mean running up and down a court if it's basketball. It means watching highlights, watching tapes, watching games, studying. There were times I'd be at home laying on my bed, just have a ball in my hands, throwing it around, you know, pretending to shoot it, just feeling the ball and, you know, even using your imagination as a young fellow, as stupid as it sounds. Those things are all part of putting time into your craft and if you do those three things you have a very good opportunity to be a professional or be a very good very good junior player so that answers that thanks for your question question number two comes from jackson who is located in brisbane jackson with an x jackson waldy question is as an aussie growing up who made you want to play basketball especially in a country where basketball wasn't really popular at the time nobody is the short answer i didn't have anyone pushing me towards basketball my parents my dad didn't know anything about basketball. They didn't, they didn't push me towards it. Much to the contrary of all the bananas that rail me for being rich because I'm seven foot. I, I, I didn't know I was going to be seven foot at eight or nine years old when I fell in love with the game. Uh, my parents were six four and five eleven, five ten. There's no chance I would have thought I was going to be seven foot. So I just played because I loved the game and ended up. It all ended up working out, and the rest is history. But um, it wasn't anyone specifically. My dad was a soccer player as a young fella, so he liked soccer. Um, Mum wasn't very sporty. I just genuinely accidentally fell in love with the game. And it started with throwing a, a tennis ball and then a soccer ball through a rusty old hoop that was at my dad's, outside of my dad's mechanical workshop. That that in-depth story is on the Rogue Bogues My Journey series. So I urge you to listen to that whole childhood story and episode two will drop soon as well. Yeah, I mean, that's where that's where all that lies. It, it, it just wasn't a person. If anything, TV probably played a huge part. I still remember the peak of, of NBL basketball. It was Friday night game, sold out. Entertainment Center, that was live on TV. Then they'd show a game, I think, Saturday Arvon, potentially even Sunday for the NBL. It'd be two or three games a weekend. And then on top of that, you get, I think it was Saturday morning was the game of the week. So they condense a, a full NBA game to an hour. So it'd just be a quick game. And then I think Sunday morning they had... Um, NBA action, which was a 30-minute highlight tape, and I would record all of those and then watch them that whole week until I had new recordings the next week and never delete anything because then for the off-season, it would all be tapes I'd watch every day and then I'd go outside and shoot or play afterwards. So that's where you can really put time and energy into the game when you're not playing and it goes back to, to the question that it wasn't really a person for me. It wasn't a father figure, a parent, or cousin, auntie, uncle. It was sheer luck that I fell into a sport that I ended up being the perfect type for um, and playing in the NBA. So thanks for your question, Jackson. We'll get to the next one, which is from Troy Asquith. 
I hope I pronounced that right. Pretty sure I'd be pretty close though. He's from Ipswich in Queensland. Been there a few times actually, funnily enough, along my journeys for numerous reasons. And the question is, when you went down with your elbow injury, your career was on a steady incline to one of the best centers in the league. How much pressure was there from the Bucks front office and coaches to get you back to that player that quickly was becoming one of the better centers in the league or were they mostly supportive? It's a tough one because it was a, a real point in my career where things changed rapidly. I was my most successful year as an individual in the NBA, 16 and 10 a night, made the All-NBA third team. And that second half of the season, I really started ascending. I really started playing well, confident, started to figure out the landscape of how the league works and, and all that kind of stuff and was really, really feeling good, uh, expanding my game, being able to go left and right, started to shoot the face-up jumper and it was all coming together beautifully and then – one elbow injury, I end up breaking my elbow, um, fully dislocating it, breaking it, breaking my wrists, and then breaking my index finger all on the right side, breaking my wrist on both sides as well. Had a cast from the top of my shoulder down to my index finger, so did that in March or April, and was it was a six to nine month injury, depending on how much range of motion I can get back in my elbow, which takes time. And I rushed back. I came back in. I came back in September stupidly, and probably should have taken a bit more time off um, to get the rehab. You know, to get closer to 100%, I probably came back at 60, 65, 70% as far as how my arm was and sucked it up, played through it. And I had an issue with my elbow for the whole season. I kept complaining about getting every fourth, fifth shot that I'd shoot, jumper or hook shot. I feel like someone stabbed it, put a knife in my elbow right in the joint. So I'd go to the trainer and be like, mate, something's not right. I'm losing feeling. It's it's the sharp stabbing pain. No, you'll be right, mate. You'll be right. You'll be right. And I went and got nerve tests. I got, got all kinds of tests because I was worried about it. I knew, I knew something wasn't right. And and the more I went to the trainer, the more he made me feel like a dickhead. I just felt like I was soft and what am I complaining about? So I just stopped, I stopped complaining about it um, to him as the season went on. I was taping it up and whatever. And at the end of the season, I ended up going and getting a, surger- a surgery done or a scope arthroscopic surgery and they, they take out a huge chunk of, of floating bone that was just loose in my elbow joint so the elbow joint's not a massive joint as it is and yeah it's got a big a big um chunk of bone asked the surgeon to box that up for me for takeout and he put it in a jar for me and i took it back and threw it in my trainer's the trainer's face and said mate like i'm, I'm not this is just to prove I'm not crazy, like, and I'm not not being soft. Like this was in my elbow, and the rest of history with that. That my career really changed because I had Scott Skiles as a coach, and thankfully he was he was on me about being a better defender. And I came out of uh, college labelled as a defensive bust, and I'm really proud of the fact that I made it all defensive second team and was one of the best defenders on on, on the low low block or in the low post in the league at one point, and that was a big. Thank you to Scott Skiles for teaching me that, um, teaching me how to be, how to really uh, control a game from the defensive end. And thankfully, he got on me on, you know, regarding that because my offensive game declined and my defensive game got better. So I still was able to be a thirty-plus minute player and contribute out there. And I still had a solid year with that elbow injury. I averaged double double. I think I led the league in blocks that year. We're still playing pretty well for the most part. A double double leading league in blocks isn't too shabby. With Basically, one arm um, couldn't go right at all that year, couldn't shoot right, and then it affected kind of confidence from the free throw line, and that was a mental battle throughout my career after that. Still grinded a, a pretty good career out of it, but yeah, there, there was a def- definite change in my game, and look, at the end of the day, it all worked out. When you look back, I ended up getting moved to, to Milwaukee, and uh, to, to Golden State from Milwaukee, and, and winning the championship, so can't cry over spilt milk too much, just have a few little archies to um, show the kids along the way. Question four. Comes from Christian Bleisner. Something along those lines. I hope I said it right. Bleisner. And Christian is from the Frankston area, right near home. Occasionally visit Stan Nong in Devil Hills. Cool to hear about the story on um, the Rogue Bugs My Journey episode one. Thank you for that. Very interesting question coming up. What was the game that you were involved in that was the worst officiated? And do you think Tim Donaghy was the only ref on the dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign on the money, on the take? So I, I don't, I don't specifically remember any games where we absolutely got screwed. I mean, looking back, when you're in the moment, I'm sure there was plenty. One thing you learn is referees are human; they make mistakes like anybody. They do get caught up in the moment sometimes. There were some referees that were as, as emotional as players, and you had to figure that out along the way. It's just like anything else. 
the the crazy thing, the hardest thing I, f- I found was the referees that knew they made a bad call and then still were so kind of prideful about it. They tee you up after you complained or whatever and the good referees would diffuse a situation instantly by if they made a bad call, they'd say, oh, mate, yeah, I screwed that one up. I missed that one or, oh, yeah, sorry, I blew my whistle a bit early. And then no matter how pissed you were, you just couldn't keep going with it because you're like, he, he just admitted he messed up. So you'd always say, oh, mate, you owe me one, you know, and they'd nod their head, whatever. They hit that a hundred times a game. But those are the refs I respected. There, there were a lot that were emotional and would, would just, you know, want to be part of the part of the game instead of being what they should be. Referees, in my opinion, shouldn't be seen. They should be, you know, a good referee, a good referee is not seen or heard um, or talked about and the game flows beautifully, that's a good referee. A referee that makes it about himself generally is not a good referee, in my opinion. As far as the Tim Donahue stuff, very interesting times. It really it really put a, a dark cloud over the NBA. Now, Tim, I've listened to a few of his podcasts that he's done, claims that he never bet on any games, that he refereed specifically, that all he would do was give his bookie friend or friends' information regarding relationships he knew were strained between referees and players, which which I'm sure he did, um, but I, I think he did a bit more than that and, and possibly better on his own games as well. But uh, that's all alleged. Um, I mean, what Tim was saying was that he, if he knew a referee hated a certain player and vice versa, he knew that that player would get a bunch of fouls early, they'd foul him out, he wouldn't get to the free throw line as much, he wouldn't get the you know those superstar calls if he was a superstar, and that would greatly affect the spread or the game. And you know he'd tell the bookies like the away team's got a better chance because that ref's not going to give the superstar home call. So that happens a lot in our league as far as um, the strained relationships between players and and some referees. And we had it. We had we had a certain guy on our team in Golden State that one referee absolutely hated him every time we played him, and every time he refereed us, sorry. It was there was something shady that would kind of half happen, you know. And I'm not saying he was on the take. I'm just saying the relationship between that player and the referee was just not good, and we knew, you know, we we're in for it. So, as far as do I think Tim Donahue was the only ref? This might be controversial to say, but no, um, I think he has stated that he wasn't. People then say, well, can you trust what he says considering what he's done? But I think in the course of NBA history, to think there's only ever been one referee that's given bookies information that's you know, being involved in something a bit shady or whether it was, you know, massive or small, human nature and money don't go well together. And I'd, I'd, I'd be willing to bet the house there's at least been one referee over the course of NBA history that's had some sort of involvement with, with betting and bookies. That's just my opinion. I, I can't can't give you a name because I don't know who it would be. But there's a, there's obviously, in my opinion, more than just one. You, you'd be and you'd be silly to think it's just one referee over the course of NBA history, especially when you know back 10, 15, 20 years ago, the referee maybe twenty years ago, the referees weren't getting paid a lot of money. You know what I mean? They're getting a bit they're getting a bit better now, where they can treat it as a full time job. A lot of them still have side jobs. I know that for a fact. But human nature, money talks, bullshit walks. So my opinion, yeah, it would be yes. I think other referees have at some point in NBA history. There's there's, there's someone out there that has has done something dodgy as far as refereeing. An NBA basketball game, and you'd be silly to think otherwise because it's happened in almost every sport in the world at some point. Fifth question comes from Thomas Smith, and his question is pretty simple. Australia has shot up the FIBA World Rankings over the past ten years or so. What do you think has contributed to the contributed most to the improvement, and what further things need to be done to ensure we continue this trend? It's a great question. In Australia, have always had a great junior program. So our junior basketball program here is, in my opinion, top five in the world and always has been. What we're seeing now is is that, that transitioning and translating into senior basketball, where it didn't do that in the in the eighties, nineties, and even two thousands. It went our junior teams would be heavy hitters um, in world tournaments and be top three, top four, under twenty ones in ninety eight on I think it was ninety eight or ninety seven won the world championships. We won one in oh three under nineteens world championships court medalists. But those players then would they wouldn't really transition to the NBA or Europe. They'd they'd end up just floating back to the NBL and maybe going to college and then coming back to the NBL. Whereas now we're starting to see that that, that massive transition from juniors to pros and I think I'd like to think I'm a part of it without tooting my own horn I think Luke Longley is the original gangster when it comes to that he was the trendsetter and he was he led a lonely life as far as an Australian in the NBA and I think a few Aussies uh, also you know Shane Hill, Andrew Gaze, Chris Anstey went over there and, and had really really small stints Anstey was probably the longest tenured out of those guys and I think he got to three or four years and no one really stuck 
and I got drafted in 2005 and yeah I mean it was it was big news in Australia but unknown news no one really knew about NBA basketball too much here to an extent outside of cult followers and for an Australian to go number one you know it was it was massive and I think that set a trend for kids here saying you know what I can I can get to the NBA maybe not number one maybe not top 10 but I can get to the NBA if this kid can his journey of growing up in the suburbs of Melbourne to becoming a top five number one draft pick it's achievable and and then now I've seen a snowball effect of it and I couldn't be more proud of seeing more and more Aussies in the NBA and the number now that we're at is I don't even know I didn't research it but I'm, we're in double digits and not only are guys in the NBA but they're they're playing vital roles for their team Ben Simmons Joe Ingles Aaron Baines Paddy Mills you know the list goes on even Delhi has a huge role for his team mainly culturally and in the locker room when he's not playing minutes so everyone's has a big effect on their on their teams and franchises and I couldn't be prouder of it I think it's absolutely sensational I love. I love the fact that I was a part of the start of that journey to, to to show that hey, this is achievable. Like it's it's something that was more of a fairy tale for for the most part, but is now something that everyone can feel and touch through myself and and Joey and Ben Simmons and Patty and Bainsey, and we come back and play for the Boomers, and I think people now know it's achievable. So could be more proud, and hopefully we continue that pipeline in the future. That the one. Tidbit I'd say is the end of your question was, can we continue that? That's my one concern. This has been the most successful year of churning out NBA players this last decade in Australian basketball history. It's hard to sustain. I just hope we continue to develop at the level we are, and I hope there's not a drop-off because after this this boomers group, I think this core group has another three or four years, bar Ben Simmons and Dante and a few other guys, um, Josh Green, but let's hope we can get one or two Aussies every other draft and and we'll continue that trajectory. But um, that's the one concern I have is – Let's make sure we keep this rolling and it just doesn't get down to one or two guys again. Last question, question number six. This one came in right on the buzzer. Right before I was about to do the pod, it came in and it was um, an interesting one, which I'm sure will be a bit controversial, but it's what I'm here for, right? It comes from Daniel Drum. These are his words, not mine, so don't get mad at me. It's from a farm in the Wimmera, Victoria region, in brackets, aka bumfuck nowhere. Don't get mad at me. His words, not mine. And his question is a long-winded one, so I'll get reading. During the NBA China controversy, where LeBron James eloquently told the media that his colleague is uneducated and selfish for promoting human rights in Hong Kong and shouldn't speak up on social issues, there was next to no criticism from fellow NBA players on his blatant hypocrisy. From what I saw, there was only your fine self and the defensive monster from Turkey and his canter. Uh, not a defensive monster, more an offensive monster. But that's okay, we'll give you a pass. Had the balls to publicly react to comments on social media. The rest of the NBA world, at least in terms of NBA players, was silent. What do you think was the main reason for nearly no other NBA players reacting to LeBron's comments? Do you think it's because they're worried about hurting their relationship with LeBron, their deal with Nike, a lack of interest in or knowledge of what's going on between China and Hong Kong, or a combination of all or something else? Well... The short answer is money talks, bullshit walks. That's the short answer. I think there's a bunch of different factors. I think you hit one of them. I think there is a smaller number these days of players who have no idea what's going on outside the US. It used to be much bigger. I think you don't really, you can't really have that excuse as much considering social media and how close we are to the rest of the world now. But there would be a small number of guys, much like Americans, I love you, but not the best at knowing what's going on in the rest of the world at times it's outside of the US. You factor in, you usually know what's going on in your in your suburb, in your city, in your state, and in your country. But beyond that, you know, we're pushing it a little bit. It's just a, the it is it is fact. So I hope that doesn't offend people, but it is fact. So that there were there probably were some players that couldn't even point to Hong Kong on a map, which is fair enough. But a large number um fall in the hypocrisy basket. I think there's a, a fair few players in our league that are, do a lot of PSAs and uh, activists for numerous causes, especially in the last 12 months, which is I have no issue with whatsoever. I think LeBron does a, a great job of promoting whatever he needs to promote and, and what he likes to promote and his passions and all that kind of stuff. No issue with that. But I think when it comes to NBA China, there's muddied waters because they're writing big checks and I know for a fact there's a lot of guys that go over to go over to China in the off season and run, you know, for seven days. They run a few camps, kiss a few babies, shake hands, do a few meet and greets at a, at a mall for a corporation or whatever, and you know they get a five hundred, six hundred thousand, a million dollars deposited in their in their account. You know, 
they're not going to say anything. Um, at the same time, their shoe companies, all of them, the biggest spenders and people that buy the most apparel, whether it be whoever, whatever brand you want to name, whether it's a Chinese brand, American brand, it's, it's the purchasing powers from China. So they can single-handedly bomb a company's earnings and players are paid by those shoe companies. So the moment these comments came out by Daryl Morey, which was a ballsy move by him, and I respect it. He did, I think he did apologize, which I wish he didn't because he didn't say anything wrong. If, you, if you're going to be an activist about human rights in one country, you more than likely should be a human human's right activist throughout the world, right? I don't, I don't buy the whole, I don't, know, I don't know enough about the situation or blah, blah, blah. And there was these people saying that, um, oh, well, it doesn't fix the issues that are happening on our ground and, and what's happening here. Well, there is, some, there is a, you have to agree, there is a level, level of hypocrisy because it was hurting the, it would hurt the bottom line for some people. So I think Maury's comments were interesting, but I think um, – comes down to money, man. It just comes down to money at the end of the day. NBA China spend a lot of money in the NBA, as we know. I've been there numerous times, and, and they love NBA basketball, and they're, they're super fans. They, they, they treat the NBA players like rock stars over there, and, and they're a big reason why the NBA players and, and us as NBA athletes have made so much money over the over the last decade plus, and why it's surged is because of NBA China. It's, it's no coincidence since Yao Ming having him involved in the league that the league – has just you know it's gone 100x since since then so you can't fault that but at the same time you can't deny that china has its own its own issues with human rights violations and most of the apparel that we see superstars wear is is made by it is made by slave labor so you know it is a bit hypocritical especially considering what's going on in hong kong and the rest of the world and for even athletes out there to say shut up and dribble when it comes to that question oh, i don't know enough about the situation when you know everything about every other situation that involves activism was hypocritical in my book but like i said at the end of the day every one of those players would have got a call from their agent the day that maury comment dropped the clubs would have had them in in meetings the pr people at all the nba clubs would have had them in and said shut your mouths do not comment on China. The league would have called clubs individually and their agents would have called t- players individually. Do not comment, no comment. Say you don't know, I don't care what you say. Plead the fifth, act like you you don't know anything outside of the city you're in, act like you're the biggest idiot in the world. You, you don't know enough about the situation and what do we see? Don't know enough about the situation to comment, which was a load of shit for the most part. So hypocrisy rules, money talks, bullshit walks. Moving on from the q and I'm going to finish rogue bogues the basketball podcast i try to finish it with um story time with bogues it's going to be a segment we finish and it's generally going to be a funny story along the way and i think this one's pretty funny i hope it is kind of mature but at the same time it was hilarious to me at the time and it still is today we're going back to 2007 my second year in the nba 06 07 year head coach terry stotts it was his second year with us he was a rookie head coach came in with me as a rookie player he was re-head coach for the milwaukee bucks sorry he first i think he coached atlanta before that and i had a lot of success as a head coach and he you know my rookie year we make the playoffs i think i was one of three number one picks ever in the nba to make the playoffs their rookie year i think myself tim duncan and i think it was joe smith i could be wrong but anyway terry was a He's coaching for Portland now, obviously. Very, very good X's and O's. Really, I think, was ahead of, ahead of the game at that point in his career as far as his spacing and the way he taught the game offensively. Defensively was okay. It wasn't, a, wasn't the number one priority for him, but was okay. But he, he wasn't. He's a coach that's way better suited to now. When I first came in the league, I came from two hard-headed coaches, disciplinarians, guys that would yell and scream. And that wasn't Terry. He wasn't a guy that would get after after plays and that's perfectly fine that's his style this isn't a criticism by any means and terry you know if someone we're doing we're doing things this way and then someone did it a different way he wouldn't really arc up he'd be like come on mate you know like there'd never really be in a he never raised his voice. He just wasn't that coach, right? Which is fine. It's not a criticism, like I said. So you fast forward on to 2006-07 season. We, we have a kid who ends up being a pretty good friend of mine. I've known for a little while since the junior tournaments, Damir Markota. And Croatian kid, he gets drafted by us, comes over. And okay player, I mean, he was floating between us and, and, the, um, and the G League and didn't stick in the NBA, but could shoot the three ball, a bit undersized for the four spot. Wild kid, man. Like a really, what would I say? Like he's the life of a party when he goes out. Really nice guy. But wild, like, like to party, like to get out and have a good time. He'd be the you know, the guy that's, that's in the nightclub or a bar that everyone would kind of surround around as the night got longer because he just had a presence about him being out and just was, was a good dude. Right, so he 
he'd, you know, he's in Milwaukee. Milwaukee, last call generally at bars and clubs is 1.30 a.m. Clubs close their door at 2. This is this dude would find stuff. He'd find, I don't know where the hell he would go. He'd be out till 6, 7 in the morning. I found this house party from the club owner and then they did this. And, and he's just one of those guys that would just end up having a good time no matter what, right? So everyone kind of knew he was a little wild and like to get after it, which which was, wasn't really an issue. Like it's not like he was showing up late or anything, but just keep that in mind that he was kind of wild and reckless at times. So I had to look the date up. January 31st, 2007, we're playing at Orlando and they're still at the old arena, obviously because it hadn't been built yet. And um, 10 years later, it got built. But so we're playing and we're down 56-29 at halftime, just absolute shitter of a, of, a, of a half of basketball. We pretty much lost the game. We're down, what is it, 27 points in the first half. And I mean, basically they need a, six-minute period in the third quarter and they can get their starters out and the game's over. So they pretty much wrap the game up. We're playing terrible and coaches generally at halftime will will go to a coach's locker room. We walk to our locker room, players' locker room. They go to the coaches. They talk about the game, maybe a few adjustments. Hey, they're killing us on this play or Dwight Howard's killing Berger down there. We need to send a double team from the weak side, whatever, right? They'll make some adjustments. The coach comes in, talks to us. Three or four minutes, guys go to the bathroom, rehydrate, go back out on the court, right? Whenever a coach comes straight in and doesn't go to that co- assistant coach's meeting, you know something's got something's going to happen. Like he's going to blow up, use everyone, go crazy, right? So this is one of those nights. Terry comes barging in straight away. And I'm like, okay, like- been asked is kicked. We kind of really don't need to hear it, but at the same time, like I want to see Terry fire up. Like I think it's a good thing. I think he needs to, to do that every now and then. Just put one up us and tell us, you know, cause every name under the sun and threaten playing time and all that. Great, right? So this locker room. Think of a square room. Around that square room is uh, the lockers are built into the wall, basically in a, in a U shape, and then the front is the whiteboard and the coach. So standard room, locker room. It's an old school arena. All the benches are hard hardwood benches right like a parquetry type benches but elevated onto seats so terry's comes in he's losing his shit he's like you know what are you guys doing this is bullshit like we don't you know we're not doing anything we talked about you guys you guys aren't here did you go out last night what the hell's going on there and he's losing it right and so i'm like oh he's actually losing it like great like it's actually not a bad thing and right in the, halfway through that speech you just hear <laughs> so everyone stops <laughs> Terry stops, looks straight ahead where the sound came from. You had three guys. I think you had Demir, uh, a guy named Lingria, who was a, an, an American fellow who played all over Europe and then came back to the NBA. And then I don't know who was next to Demir, Michael Red or someone was next to him. But basically out of those three guys, you're like, you, you know who did it, right? So Terry looks straight at Demir, <laughs> goes straight for him and says, uh, Demir, did you just fart? And uh, Demir you know, goes, uh, coach, yes, sir. Uh, uh, I could not hold in. Sorry, my stomach. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And Terry like loses his shit. Like then it ends up losing it at Demir. Like we make no adjustments. Obviously, we don't know what the hell is going on. We're basically penciled in a loss anyway. But this dude's like the reason why it was so bad is because the hardwood benches, man. The thing like echoed. I reckon you would you would be able to hear that out on the out on the court, man. Like it was so loud. And I don't know what Demir was doing because he liked to he liked to mess around a lot and be jovial. And he would often try to you know fart when when people were talking or coaches were talking, and he tried to do it. He tried to do it like loud enough so that people next to him would hear and start laughing. And then coach would ask him, well, "What are you what are you guys laughing at?" He tried to do you know do those stupid stuff that you do in a locker room, you know, high school type shit. And I just think he just it just just was too loud because of the wooden benches. But anyway, he got himself in some shit. So the next we get blown out, we lose by I don't know what we lose by probably the same score. We lose by 20, 30 points. Next morning we are flying back to I don't even know where we're flying back to. And Demir's not on the plane. He's like, "Where's Demir? At? Where's Demir? At? And he's not here." And like, I don't know. He's We've, we've sent him off to the, the G League. <laughs> They've assigned him straight to the G League. They would have signed him at halftime, man, if they could have. They sent this kid to the G League the very next day, which was Tulsa, was our affiliate, and he would have to take in three flights from Orlando to get there. And we didn't see him again until the end of the season. So just an interesting story um, along the way. Poor old Demir Marcotta got sent down to the G League. We didn't see him until the end of the season or because couldn't hold it in, coach. Just a funny story for you to end the first ever Rogue Bogues basketball podcast. I hope you enjoyed you want to get those Q&As in, follow all our socials because from time to time we'll put posts out welcoming those Q&As. But uh, have a good day or good night wherever you're listening and we'll see you next time.